We're going to preach on one of my favorite verses of Scripture. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. So Kendall's going to read for us now the entire chapter, or the second half of Zephaniah chapter 3. So if you'd stand and give your attention to God's Word as he reads it for us. Thank you so much. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Father, would you take your word now and would you use it to shape and mold and contour our hearts to be more like you? Father, for those who have never been to church in many years, I pray that you might amaze them with the power of your Holy Spirit drawing us into your love. And for those, Lord, who feel like they're going through the motions, who are already bored, that you'll remind them that you intend to change our hearts every time your word is opened. And so we pray you'll do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this week that there are, um, there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world today, and there are 1.3 billion Muslims in the world today. Now, how we're going to define Christian and Muslim, whether that's a cultural connotation or that is a strict religious adherence, I do not know how the Pew Research Center decided to define these two terms. But what I do know is what the research says. And the research says, according to the Washington Post, according to the Pew Research Center, that by the time that those of us who were born in the 70s are in retirement, 2050-ish, there will be 29 billion Christians, and there will be 2.8 billion Muslims. By the time 2070 rolls around, it'll be the first time in not only the history of Western civilization, but of the world, where Muslims will outnumber Christians. Now, I mentioned those statistics to you not because of fear, not because I'm trying to grab your attention, but to make a very simple point. There is no such thing as a second-generation Christian. Let me say it a different way. Your children will not be Christians because you were. And one of the clearest places in the Bible we see that that's true is in the very tiny book in the Old Testament called Zephaniah. This may be perhaps the first time you've ever seen that book of the Bible, and if it is, that's fantastic. Look in your bulletin, you'll see it there. It's Zephaniah chapter 3, or you can open your Bible and find it there. On mine, Zephaniah is just after Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. 
Zephaniah chapter 3. Who is Zephaniah? Zephaniah was a prophet of the Lord who came to preach God's word to the southern kingdom of Judah around the 7th century B.C. He preached during the reign of king whose name was Josiah, who was the 16th king of Judah. He was a good king. Josiah was the great-grandson of a great king named Hezekiah. Now, let me give you a little Old Testament history for a second. There, there, were, there was one kingdom of God. Do you remember King David? Most of us know David. David had this beautiful kingdom where he brought together all of God's people, right? Saul, David, and Solomon. They were the three great kings, each ruled for 40 years over God's people. But after Solomon, his two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they decided to split the kingdom. So one took the 10 tribes of Israel to the north, and another took the two tribes, Judah, to the south. And in 722, the Assyrians, these neighboring pagan nation, this neighboring pagan nation, attacked Israel, the northern kingdom, and dispersed all their leaders, took their leaders into Nineveh, spread them out around the world, and weakened the institution of Israel at that time so that all of Israel was dispersed among the nations, never to be seen or heard from again. But Judah remained in the south. And when this happened to the north, you can imagine if we were split across some arbitrary line in the U.S. and all of our friends to the north were taken captive by some hostile territory, it would make you rethink your security again if you lived in the south. So Hezekiah, who reigned over Judah, came to their aid and he reformed all of Judah and said, guys, the reason this happened, it was in part, in part because of our unfaithfulness to the covenant of Yahweh. And so he got rid of the Asherah poles and rid of the Baals. And they had a wonderful generation of reform for God's people. But his son, Manasseh, came to power after his father, Hezekiah. And Manasseh basically undid every executive order of Hezekiah, brought back the pagan idolatries and the pagan worship. And then Manasseh's son came in after him, and Amnon basically did nothing to redress the grievances of his father. So you have Hezekiah, a great king who reforms Judah in the midst of seeing Israel taken into, Babylon, into Assyrian captivity. Then you have his son who reverses every good thing that Hezekiah did. And then his son who just sits back, he's glad he's king, does nothing about it. And the great grandson, Josiah, comes and he begins to reform Judah again. He begins to reform Judah. And this is when Zephaniah is reigning. It's from basically 640 to 609 BC, seventh century before the birth of Jesus, 700 years before Jesus came. And here's what Zephaniah had to say. Zephaniah wrote an oracle, and he said to the Philistines who are neighboring Judah, look out because God's wrath is coming upon you. And to Moab... And to Ammon, the guys who are across the Jordan River to the east, look out because God, God's wrath is coming upon you if you do not turn and worship the one true God. You know who else? The Cushites. Those are the Ethiopians who ruled over Egypt in the 12th dynasty of Egypt. They were at the height of their powers. And he says to the Cushites, look out, all of Egypt. You will fall if you do not come back to the one true God. 
And then he goes after the, 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 the Moabites, as I've said. He goes after the Ammonites, as I've mentioned. He goes after the Cushites. And then he turns his eyes onto his own people. And he says, you know what you guys think? You think that because your great-grandfather reformed the worship practices of Judah, you'll be saved. But there is no such thing as a second-generation Christian. And he goes right to the face of Jerusalem. And he says, you will not last unless you understand the good news of the one true God. And before Jesus, what was the good news of the one true God? It was that God one day, someday, would send a Messiah to fulfill everything that he had promised. There is no such thing as a second-generation Christian. And when you get to the very end of Zephaniah, after he is done pronouncing the curses on the people for their disobedience, he then turns around and pronounces a blessing. And what is the blessing that he gives them? The blessing that he gives them is that your Lord is not abandoned you. And he is in the midst of you. And he is mighty to save. He sings over you. He is proud of you. And he delights in you. But you have forgotten that. So we're going to look at four very simple points this morning. They are the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have your order of service, look at the first point. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. Why is he mighty to save? Friends, Jesus Christ is mighty to save because only he can accomplish the work required for our salvation. Only Jesus can do it. No matter how faithful you are to prayers or the five pillars, there's no act of righteousness in this world that can save you except for the work of Jesus on your behalf. And that's horribly offensive to modern sensibilities. But it's true. How do you know that? Lower your eyes to your bulletin. Look up a couple of verses to verse 15. Notice what it says. It says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. When the early church would preach on, on Zephaniah, they would use this verse as a way to, under, to explain what justification by faith meant. The Lord has taken away your approach. He's cleared away the judgments against you. If you look at point two, God loves all who are his through faith as a father loves his own child. Parents, one of the greatest things that you can teach your children is that the Lord loves you like he loves his own children. And that Jesus is proud of you if you trust in him. Because so many people, so many people project their idea of God because of you. And you're fickle. Yes, your love for your children never changes, but you know your hearts. Sometimes you're angry, and you don't want to maintain that kind of white-hot anger at your child, but it's hard. You know what? Jesus took upon every bit of the Father's anger upon himself 
so that unlike you, who sometimes have a hard time parenting your children with equity without causing them greater frustration, the Lord, when he sees his children, sees all of their sin removed because Jesus has taken it from them. And not only that, but do you know that your father runs to you? That he loves you? There's a pastor friend of mine who tells a story about, true story about a pastor in Chicago who got a phone call one night and his son had just been extremely difficult to raise. And it really was a very tough thing for this pastor. And he got a phone call one night and they said, um, Reverend so-and-so, this is Sergeant Johnson at the police department and we have your son and we need you to come and pick him up. So you can imagine the kind of uh, weight you would feel as a father getting a phone call like that. So, of course, he gets in his car at 2 o'clock, and he goes to the precinct closest to his house. And he walks in, and he says, I'm here to get my son. And the sergeant at the counter says, "Uh, we don't know anything about what you're talking about. So he says, well, maybe he's at the other precinct. So he gets in his car, 2.30, drives to the other precinct, in the suburban area of Chicago, goes to the counter and says, I'm looking for my son. They said, sir, your son's not here. We don't know what to say. We can't help you. And by this time, he's obviously frustrated, angry, and mad. And so he goes downtown Chicago, and he goes to the precinct there, and he says, I'm looking for my son. Do you know where he is? I know he's here. And they said, sir, we, we've, we haven't had any contact with your son. We don't know who he is. We, he's not here. And he goes to the only other place in town that he knows his son might possibly have gone if he was in trouble. The only other place that he would possibly call. And that was to a drug house in Chicago where he had been hanging out. So this reverend drives to this house in this shackled drug house. And he walks up to the front porch and he opens the door. And what he sees is just people strewn everywhere. It was gross. There were drug paraphernalia on the table. And this father who's looking for his son is searching these sleeping bodies to see if his son is in here. He doesn't know if they're passed out or if they're asleep or if they're high or if they're drunk. And he steps over them and he goes, he looks for his son. He can't find them anywhere. And he goes into the back bedroom and he opens the door. And there is his little boy asleep on the bed in the back of this drug house in the middle of the city. And the father wanted with everything in him to just kick him. He'd ruined their life. He'd messed up his ministry. He had driven his wife into gray hairs far earlier than she should have. He was the and he was an embarrassment to his family, and he wanted with everything he had just to kick his son. And he takes his son in his arms, laying on the bed, and he bends down. And he doesn't actually take him. He just bends down, and he kisses his son on the cheek. And he gets up, and he walks out of this house. He shuts the door, gets in his car, and he drives home. Now, the son, several weeks later, um, begins to show up around the house a bit more. And the following Thanksgiving, they're sitting out 
on their back porch and having a drink. And the father says to the son, hey, you've been, you've been hanging around here a lot more. What's up with that? I thought you hated us. And the son said, dad, don't you know? He goes, son, I don't know anything about you anymore. That night that the police called you, yeah, what was up with that? Dad, that wasn't the police. Those were my friends who were trying to embarrass you because they knew that if they called you from the police station, you were so disgusted with me that you would never come looking. And you came. And when you kissed me on the cheek, instead of kicking me in the face, that's what did it. And slowly but surely, the son began to leave the drug habits of his later teenage years, and he began to hang around the family more and more because of the kiss of his father. You know, in Luke 15, there's a story about the kiss of a father. You know, in Luke 15, there's a story of the prodigal son, right? You guys have all heard that story before. You know, there are two stories before that story. There's the story of the woman who lost one of her coins, Women in the ancient Near East often wore their coins on their head. And here's a woman who lost one of her 10 coins. That's one-tenth of her inventory. And she loses this coin, and she turns her house upside down. She searches for it far and wide. She gets her friends to help her. And she finds the lost coin, and she rejoices. And she says, my coin was lost, but now it's found. Something was lost. Something was found, and somebody came looking for it. And then Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees, and he doesn't stop with that story. He tells another story. And he says, there was a story of a man who had a hundred sheep, and one of these sheep is lost. And the man goes and leaves the 99 sheep, and he goes and he finds the one sheep. And he rejoices when he finds this sheep and says, my little sheep was lost, but now it's found. Something was lost, something was found, and somebody came looking. And then Jesus raises the ante. It's not just one hundredth of an inventory. It's not just one tenth of the inventory. It's 50% of inventory because he tells the story of two sons. And one son goes off on wild profligate living, and the other son stays at the father's side. And when the son who had gone off comes back, he was lost. And the father sees him far off. You know the story. He pulls up his robe and he runs to him and he throws a robe on him and he puts a ring on his finger and he says, go kill the fattened calf for my son who was lost is found. Let's celebrate. And he throws a party for him. But somebody in that house is not happy about it, are they? Because there's an older brother in that house who never lost, never left his father's side, who instead of rejoicing and going to the party is full of self-pity and stays in. And the father goes and looks for that older brother too. And he says, what are you doing? What? Let's go celebrate. And the, father, the, the older son says to the father, listen, I have never left your side. You've never killed a fattened calf from my friends. You've never put the robe on me or a ring on my finger. I've never left you. And the father takes his older brother, other boy in his arms, and he says, son, listen, you have always been with me, and everything that I have is yours. 
Let's go celebrate. The reason why it is important for us to hear the gospel again and again and again is because we are a church, even we are an entire county, entire city full of older brothers. And do you wonder why that younger brother left his house? The text doesn't explicitly say, but it's not hard to imagine that the younger brother left his house in part because of the self-righteous arrogance of the older brother. And friends, we must be a church who continually calls older brothers back to the gospel because then the younger brothers will come home. But it will not happen the reverse. You cannot try to win younger brothers with people who are self-righteous filling the pews because nobody's impressed by that. That's why they don't go to church. You know what I'm saying? Are you with me? Your Lord is mighty to save. He isn't just mighty to save, but you have a father who came and looked for you. He ran to you. And whether you are a younger brother who has lived in a, whatever sin you want to put in the blank, licentious life, or you're an older brother who has been a legalist, who has been dutiful, listen, sometimes the greatest obstacle to your growth in the gospel are your good deeds that you set up against God because you intend for him to bless you because of your performance. That is not how the gospel works. You are blessed based upon the performance of one, namely Jesus Christ. And when you begin to believe that you have a father who loves you through faith, he runs to you, he invites you to have a relationship with him, then you begin to understand this 50 cent, very important word that the church has used through the year, years called justification by faith. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians, one scholar says, are solidly, solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Listen to me. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscience, willful disobedience. But few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform, that is Martin Luther. Luther's platform, that you are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance and relaxing, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. Much that we have interpreted as a defect in sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Christians are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements. And they are subconsciously radically insecure people. 
Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. (laughs) That is so true. Friends, if we're going to be a church that learns to love the world around us again and again and again, we have to be people who appropriate our justification by faith. And how do you do that? It's by faith in Jesus' work for you. That is the ground of your assurance. Not your feelings, not even your religious performance. Third, God wants you to rest in his love and providential care because his plans are perfect. In the court of justification, your good works do not matter one bit. In the court of sanctification, they are like jewels or ornaments for, of your rest and of your joy. What do I mean? We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ through faith alone, but you are justified in order to be made more holy like Jesus. If you really are justified, it will begin to show in your life. And there is so much misunderstanding about the nature of sanctification today. We're going to talk about it just for a few minutes. But I want you to see where we get this in the text. Look at verse 15, second half. It says, The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Present tense. The first part of 15 was past tense with with present circumstances. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. That's justification. Now the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Now he is with you. You shall never again fear evil. The difference between justification and sanctification is like two sides of a coin. Your sanctification, your growing in Jesus' likeness will naturally happen if you learn to rest in your justification. You will become more like him. But if you just try to be good, then you will find yourselves doubting your assurance and wandering like crazy from church to church for some kind of emotional fill-up to make your conscience settle down. The fruit of sanctification, of growing in Jesus, is your repentance. And what is the fruit of your repentance? It is rest. You show me someone who has learned how to rest in the gospel, and I'll show you someone who has learned the joy of repentance. Because without repentance, there is no rest. Because you're constantly trying to one-up what you did last week. And you're exhausting yourself. God calls Judah through Zephaniah back to holiness by resting in what Yahweh will do through the Messiah. And for us as Christians today, what Jesus Christ has done Sanctification is growing in your resemblance to Jesus. It is not optional for Christians. It is commanded. Romans 8 says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
Ephesians 4 says, speaking the truth in love, may you grow up into him in all things which, of which he is head, even Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, Paul says, do you want to know what God's will is for you? Do you want to know what God wants you to do today? Your sanctification. It is not optional. But so many times, friends, we think that if, we, um, if we're saved, that there's, there's nothing else we need to do. And that's true. There's nothing else you need to do to be saved. But how do you know that you're saved unless you're growing in holiness? Calvin has three uses of how you use the Old Testament law. The first use is a mirror of your heart. When you read the Old Testament, you're reminded of the fact that you are not up to par with what God asks of you. It's the schoolmaster use. There's a second use of the law. It's the civil use of the law. It is the fence. It is showing how all of humanity ought to live, even though it will do nothing, it'll do nothing to regenerate an unregenerate heart. It does, nevertheless, show the bounds of how the Lord wants us to live. The third use of the law is specific for Christians. And that is it is a signpost to the work of Jesus Christ. And it is a signpost to how you are to look more and more like Jesus. The third use of the law, which is the most controversial, is that we are to obey the Old Testament law because God gives it to us to help us be more and more in conformity with his son. And moms and dads, there is no such thing as a second-generation Christian. And if your parents are going to learn how to see through the lens of the hypocrisy that they've seen in your family and in mine, then they have to learn how to see what repentance looks like. Coming again to the law of the Lord and seeing it confront you with your sin and being able to lean into that and to confess your need for grace. The fruit of your repentance is resting in Jesus' finished work for you. That is his sanctifying power. It is seen through the rest that Christians have in their identity in Jesus. God promises to deliver us from the penalty of our sin, that's justification, from the power of our sin, that is sanctification ultimately, because he will bring us into the presence of his glory. That is justification. Where do you see that in the text? Look at verse 16. On that day, on that day, a phrase that Zephaniah uses frequently, when God shall come to put an end to all sin and make us holy and blameless in his sight, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. A couple weeks ago, I went to a funeral in Dallas of a, a, a dear friend of Lauren's and mine who was a coach for us in the early days of Trinity. His name was Dave Cleland. And Dave lost his wife, Gail, in a moment of 36 hours from a stroke to a coma to she passed away. It was very sudden, and she was in great health. And Dave was sitting there with my friend, another pastor, and they were talking about what exactly is happening for Gail right now. You ever wondered that? What exactly is happening 
with her right now. Are the angels bringing her up to the Father's presence? Is Gabriel getting her? Is Michael getting her? Like what exactly, like theologically, what exactly happens? And they both said, well, yeah, the angels are ushering her into the presence of the Lord. And then my friend who's doing this funeral preaches the funeral message from Jude, the very end of Jude. There's a benediction. A benediction is just a fancy word for a good word that Jude gives toward the very, very end. In verses 24, it's only one chapter, the entire book. And the very end in verse 24 and 25, my friend who's preaching the sermon says, Dave, I think we both got it wrong. The angels aren't presenting Gail to the Father. Do you know who's presenting Gail to the Father? Jesus. Because in Jude 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, when you die, you, if you're in Christ, you will be presented to the Father spotless, blameless, perfect in every way by your elder brother Jesus who did everything for you that you could not do. And he presents you to his Father like a bridegroom presents his bride. And friends, that will be a beautiful day. And if you're going to begin to help your children understand the nature of the gospel, you have to help them understand justification, yes, sanctification, yes, but also help them understand glorification because they will grow up thinking that God is going to heap judgment on them. But you teach them that God will heap praise upon them when they face judgment. And that is the doctrine of glorification. It is also probably the doctrine that has helped me most with the struggle of perfectionism in my own life and in the lives of those I've counseled. You cannot get past your struggle with perfectionism, those of you who struggle with it, without resting in the doctrine of glorification. Because it's it's God's job to make you perfect, and he will. And he's got a big task at hand because he's dealing with you. (laughs) But as you come back to the gospel again and again, You recognize that in justification, you rest in your assurance that Jesus has done for you everything that needed to be done. That he runs after you and he doesn't just forgive you of your sins, but he clothes you in his righteousness. In your sanctification, he doesn't leave you as you are, but he intends intends for you to grow in holiness. He wants you to grow in generosity. He wants you to grow in your prayer life. He wants you to grow in your love for others, to be less self-preserving, more self-giving. Are you? Are you? Because nobody's impressed with the church when they're just a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites meeting together on a Sunday to hear their own praises. What you need is the glory of Jesus for him to show you that he wants to change you. And one day, someday, he will present you to his father blameless and spotless, and it'll be a beautiful day. Whenever we gather for public worship, which is why it's so moving to me that everybody is here despite all the obstacles we could have had to stay home, we gather as a snapshot of our future, a snapshot of the day when Christ will make all of us beautiful before the father. 
when you gather for worship, you are saying together, we believe, we believe that you're coming to make all things new. And we need to be reminded yet again of that. And the way that we celebrate that is by showing our children again and again the power of repentance in the parent's life, just like Zephaniah called his people to. We may be outnumbered one day. We may be. That is not to be of our concern. What is to be of our concern is are you growing in repentance? Are you moving out to the world in love? And are you resting your assurance of salvation, not on your own performance, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ? That is the only way for you to have rest. And that is the only way for you to be able to come into the Lord's presence, knowing that he sings over you his praise, that he is mighty to save, that he's accomplished all for you that you could not accomplish, that he rejoices over you with gladness. He is not, he is not angry at you. He will quiet your anxious heart with his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. That is why it's important for us to sing in worship. We are a picture to each other of Jesus singing over us. And that is why it's important for us as moms and dads, even as children, to come repentantly as we will in just a moment to this table because Jesus is proud of you and he wants nothing more today than to sup and commune with you and to remind you of his love. Amen? If there are obstacles for you to believe the good news of the gospel, would you ask the Holy Spirit to go to work in your heart over those, whether they're emotional or they're intellectual, and come and see the beauty of your crucified, resurrected, ascended Savior who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Amen.